morning. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to Exodus chapter 20, I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Um, If you open that to page 61, you'll find uh, the passage I'll be reading this morning. Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the, land, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. say uh, good morning to you as well and welcome to this service of worship at Grace Baptist Church. We're a little low in number. Um, There's a lot of sickness still in our church family and uh, there's some extreme weather I guess on the outer edges of the radius of this church family Um, but we're very glad also to have visitors with us today and I hope that you feel very warmly welcomed among us. Um, what What a great day it's been so far and now we have the great privilege of turning to God's word, um, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to the passage that Caleb just read in case it closed on your lap. I want you to keep it open so that we can work through God's word together. Now, I know Christmas was three weeks ago, which for some reason, I don't know if you're anything like me, but it feels like three months ago. But I wondered if you can recall experiencing anything like this. Um, You had a very, very Merry Christmas. It was great. You received some lovely gifts. Nothing really extravagant, but stuff that you could really use. Um, Some some cool things there. 
And that you got some things that um, you could tell that the person who gave it to you was really thinking of you. They, they put some thought into that gift, and it's, it's special for that reason. But, but maybe even as you were turning a particular present over in your hand after having just unwrapped it, you look out the side of your eye um, to, to a present that your sibling is unwrapping, and ooh la la. It's a nice one. It's a, it's a really nice one. It's, it's something that you wish that someone had gotten you instead of this lesser item that you've now stopped turning in your hand. Or maybe it happened when you got back to school after New Year's. You know, you're comparing notes with your friends, asking each other what the other person got. And something really happened in your heart when they told you about their new PlayStation 5. And then when it was your turn, uh, you mumbled something about the, the shaker knit sweater that your grandma made for you. <laughs> but as warm as that is, you, you suddenly find yourself cooling towards it. Um, suddenly all you can think about is PlayStation. Or maybe all you can think about is vacation, because uh, when you return to work after the holidays, you learn that your coworker spent the week at an all-inclusive resort in the Caribbean. And something happened in, in your heart upon learning that, when he was showing you, you know, the photo stream on his phone. My goodness, the, the sun, the, the beaches, the tans, the plates of gourmet food, and wow, his wife looks really good. Now, two things are happening in your heart simultaneously. You become distressed about your own situation, your stuff, while you're becoming obsessed with your neighbor's stuff. Your contentment is plummeting while your covetousness is through the roof. And all of this before you've even said or done a thing. Welcome, friends, to the 10th commandment. Uh, today we conclude our mini-series on these 10 words. And it's, it's not like the Lord is finished giving the law at this point. In fact, the next three chapters are just chock full of meticulous regulations about work and worship and, well, just the living of life under um, the Lord and his rule. But the one, interesting, one of the interesting things that we'll discover, I'm sure, is that what follows largely is case law. In other words, it's simply uh, specific outworkings of these Ten Commandments. Um, these Ten Commandments are really an excellent summary of all what is it, 613 Old Testament laws for Israel. Um, so it was good that we could spend some time to look at them in depth. And again, I want to remind you that the Ten Commandments themselves can be summarized. They are a summary of the whole law, but the Ten Commandments themselves can be summarized. The entire law and prophets can be summed up as they are by our Lord Jesus when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So that's, that's an excellent summary that Jesus gives us about these Ten Commandments. So we ask, well, where does this commandment fit, this tenth? Where does it fit into that summary, into that sort of schema? And obviously it fits into the second category. This is all about how we rightly relate to our fellow man. And the repetition of the word neighbor in verse 17 of chapter 20 um, it's repeated three times explicitly and an additional four times kind of implicitly with the pronoun. That repetition kind of makes the strong case that this is all about how we relate to our neighbors in a proper way. But I also want to attempt to show you this morning just how closely coveting is connected to a lack of love for God. And how this last commandment actually takes us all the way back to the first. Now I want to work through this passage under uh, three headings. Just one verse, but um, we'll kind of take it under three headings. We'll see first the command, and then the core, and then the cure. The command, the core, and, and the cure. And then... Um, you know, first we're going to look at just some of the details of this command against coveting. And then we're going to try to dig a little bit deeper to discover what's at the core of our coveting. But we want to examine there that the heart of the matter, if you will. And not just the heart of covetousness, but actually we'll want to examine our own hearts in light of covetousness. And then we'll conclude by considering the cure for our coveting. So that's where we're headed, just to kind of give you a roadmap. Uh, let's get into it. Let's first look at the command. And it's simple, really. Maybe it doesn't even justify having its own sermon point. The commandment is essentially this, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Now, it may be necessary for us to define the word covet because it's not a word that's commonly used today or when we do use the term we use it we use kind of like a, I would say a significantly softened version of that word so we'll say for example I covet your prayers and by that we simply mean that we would love it if people would remember to pray for us as we you know prepare for an upcoming surgery or a difficult conversation that needs to ha happen. We say, I covet your prayers, but, but we really just mean, I would really like for you to pray for me. Covet doesn't actually just mean, you know, strongly desiring something. It's more, more like an insatiable craving for something. And what's more, and I think this is probably the key part of the definition, covening is always in relation to someone else. Okay, so it's, a, it's an insatiable desire in relationship to someone else. And you're craving essentially something that someone else has. Here's the best definition that I could find. To covet is to eagerly desire, wrongfully, inordinately, or without due regard for the rights of others. It's, it's that eager desire that's, that's wrong. It's inordinate, and it is not 
with any kind of regard for others. So here we have the Lord thundering from Mount Sinai demanding that we must not do that. We must not covet. Simple enough, eh? So you wonder, why is this not one of the short commandments? You know, why is this not given in just bare bones and and in rapid fire along with the last four? Maybe perceive that again when Caleb was reading it. These middle four, these, these four towards the last, they come at you just in rapid fire. There's, they come at you straight and there's no elaboration. Why couldn't this one be like those ones? In fact, this 10th commandment reminds you of the fourth commandment in, the, in, in some ways, that's verses 8 to 11, where the Lord spends time. It, it's not easy uh, I guess it is for the Lord, but to, to inscribe these things in stone so that the Lord would make the, the effort to and spend the time to drill down on all of the, for example, in the fourth commandment, all of the members of the household who must not do any work on the Sabbath. That, that's an interesting thing. It also, that's what he's doing here again in the 10th. And it, it kind of reminds you of your dad, right? When he commanded you to go straight to bed. Um, and then he added, I don't want you to read. Uh, there's no listening to music. Don't even talk to your brother who you share a room with. Go to bed. That's what your dad said. Now, you could say, I, I understand what go to bed directly means. Okay, I don't, he didn't need to spend all that time listing all of the things that I can't engage in. But your dad knows you better than you know yourself. And you're right, it is a simple command. But your father knows the specific ways that you're going to be tempted away from just simple obedience to that simple command. He knows your tendency. My dad certainly knew mine. The tendency to find exceptions and you know, justifications for those exceptions, for why his command wouldn't um, necessarily apply in my particular case. And so my dad anticipating that just kind of spells it all out at the beginning so as to remove any of those objections. In the same way, folks, I think what's happening here is that our Heavenly Father knows our frame. He knows our hearts. He knows, he knows that we're dust. He knows that we're sinful and slow to obey. He knows our penchant for finding exceptions and for imagining that his word doesn't apply to our particular situation. So, in love, the Lord God drills down on all sorts of our neighbor's stuff that we're not to covet. What's striking about this list is that it's not very striking, okay? It's just the ordinary stuff of life. The list starts with your neighbor's house. And, and actually, the order here isn't really significant, I don't think. Um, so when this command is reiterated in Deuteronomy, uh, the items come to us in a slightly different order. So I guess we shouldn't put too much stock in the order. But it starts, this list starts with your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
And maybe they're thinking, ah, Simeon's place. It's so nice. You know, it's so much bigger. It's, it's got to be over, what, 2,000 square cubits? Um, it's got a much better layout than ours does. It, way more privacy. He can put his in-laws kind of way over in their own wing. Oh, and, and how about that outhouse? You know, it's so much newer, so much cleaner. I bet he's not trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. I, if I had that one, if I had that kind of an outhouse, I'd probably sit in there for a long time reading my scroll. <laughs> oh, and, and, uh, and how about his wife? She's beautiful. She's born of eight children, but she doesn't look a day over 20. She doesn't look a shekel over 400, which isn't that bad when you do the conversion. <laughs> and I've never heard her nag old Simeon. You know, she's so kind. She's a, she's a great cook. Man, I wish she was my wife. And his workers, bo both his male workers and his female workers, I don't know where he finds these people, but these days I can't get anyone that wants to work. You know, they're all in, entitled and lazy. Every time I turn around, my servants are sitting down, they're scrolling through their scrolls. <laughs> they're just constantly hieroglyphing their friends. I'd give anything to have Simeon's manservants and his maidservants. And do you see what's parked in his barn? He's got a brand new ox. It's the new breed. It's the, it's the Farmwall Series M. And man, that thing just plows through the ground like, like it's butter. I'd love to get my hands on that thing. Got to get me one of those. And so the scenarios continue. And the Lord God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's donkey. And this is one of those times that you should be glad that I'm not preaching out of the King James Version. <laughs> the, the potential for misunderstanding there is great. But actually, in, the, in this command, the, the Lord leaves absolutely no possibility for misunderstanding. Any potential exception or justification is eliminated by the etc. that's tacked on to the end, where he says, nor anything that's your neighbor's. You shall not covet anything that's your neighbor's, not his brains, not her body, not their artistic ability, their athletic ability, not their well-behaved kids, not her spiritual maturity, not his brand new Silverado, not her figure, not their boat, not her ability to multitask, not his metabolism. I could go on and on. I have a lot of experience. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. What is it for you? What, what do you find yourself fantasizing about? 
about what things are you saying, I want that. I need that. Mine is trash. I wish I had his. I would have, I would do anything just to have that. It's prohibited by this 10th commandment. That's the command. Let's look secondly at the core. The core. This, now this uh, commandment is a bit of a Decepticon. Okay, you get the sense that there is more to it than meets the eye. And it's, it's not going to be enough just to take a superficial look at it. The command has a core. And if we are wise, we'll want to also consider our own core, not just kind of the heart of covetousness, but our own hearts as well. Um, I wonder, do you perceive any difference between this command and, and most of the other ones? Most of the other commandments are legislating against actions, if I could put it that way. Behaviors that are kind of lived out. But the 10th, this 10th commandment is concerned even with our attitudes. Can you see that? It, it's possible that maybe, and maybe it's even probable that you will have broken this commandment that you will have sinned against your neighbor in this respect without them even knowing about it. We're so prone to miss that. And um, again, Rob, I, I think, has led us to already begin thinking about this. He, he's done that in such a good way. Uh, take that person on the street that he referenced. If you ask the average person on the street, if, if they believe that they're going to go to heaven when they die, most people will probably say yes. And then if you press them as to why, they will likely start rattling off their record, right? They, they believe they have merit, and so they're going to rattle off their record, and, and they may even do so with explicit reference to the Ten Commandments. They might even start sounding an awful lot like the rich young ruler, and they'll say something like, well, I've always been a good person. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I, I'm honest. And, and here what they're doing is listing actions and behaviors that they have not engaged in. And I've asked a lot of people that question and never once, I, I think I'm right, unless my memory is failing me, never even once has anyone referenced coveting. It's not, it's not on people's radar because it's, it's an inward kind of a thing. And neither have I ever heard people address their failure to glorify God. No one, never have I heard people talk about um, their gratitude or their ingratitude towards God. We like to list the obvious sins, right? The big sins. And then we like to reassure ourselves that we're in pretty good shape since we haven't committed any of those big sins. But we, we fail to recognize so often that the less obvious, the inward sins are the big sins. The inward sins are the big sins. And I would point you if, you, uh, if you would question me on that, I would point you to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, of course, is famous for its treatment 
of some of uh, what we would consider to be big sins, sins like homosexuality, for example. But when we follow Paul's argument in that chapter, we see that homosexuality, just for one example, is a symptom. It's a consequence. It's a demonstration of the wrath of God that is upon the earth because of his righteous judgment against something previous and prior and more foundational. And that's what's the truly big sin. What is it? What, what are these fundamental, foundational, big sins that, that we all commit that, it, that results in the wrath of God? Well, it's failure to give God glory. It's a reluctance to give God thanks for all that he is and all that he has done. That's why the wrath of God is revealed. So we, we focus on identifiable actions and behaviors, but our biggest problems are private. Will you, will you not admit that? Our, I'm talking about the stuff that resides in our hearts. And to be sure, they don't often stay. That, that, that stuff doesn't stay in our hearts. Covetousness, for example, often works its way outward and it prompts us to commit other sins like stealing and murder. Scripture and history are just replete with examples of folks who coveted, say, their neighbor's wife. So you can think of David and Bathsheba, of uh, people that coveted their neighbor's vineyards and properties. You can think Ahab and uh, Naboth or their neighboring, their neighbor's country. And so you just have to think about any of the wars. And it, it leads to the stuff that's in our heart obviously comes out and leads to all sorts of wickedness, plotting, scheming, lying, fighting, murder, adultery. All of those are, are committed in an effort to act out our covetousness and to obtain what it is that we are craving. But at root, what I'm trying to get you to see is that all of these sins stem from the heart. James helps us get to the core of the problem when he writes in chapter 4 of his letter, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel? Our, our problem is not first outward, even though it you know, eventually expresses itself that way and in the most ugly fashion. That's not our primary problem. At bottom, our problem is with our passions. It, it's, that we it's that our hearts just yearn for things inordinately, wrongfully. If, if our hearts had hands, uh, it seems to me that they would be the, the hands of a toddler you know, like chubby and grabby, just always grabbing. And also like a toddler, the things that our heart grabbed for are by and large things that are currently in the hands of their rightful owner. We want what other people have. And along with James, the Apostle Paul is very helpful in helping us to understand what is at the core of this command. 
In Colossians chapter 3, he urges us to put to death whatever it is that is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, he says. And this is where it's interesting because now he adds his commentary. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And so we've come full circle. The 10th commandment brings us right back to the first and to the second. And we understand that the real reason that we covet is because we are desperately searching out things that would take their place in the center of our universe. And that by doing so, that they would knock out the one true and living God, knock him out of his rightful place. And that's what's going on in our hearts. You know, our, our goods and other people's goods, these are not just goods, they are our gods that we put before the Lord. We set up things, stuff, as, as images that we bow down to and worship. Covetousness, friends, is idolatry. And so in the space of 10 short commandments, our hearts are exposed and laid bare. By the way, that is one of God's purposes in giving us the law. We have no idea how wicked we were and we truly are until the Lord says, thou shalt not. And then something happens in your heart. Listen to Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you at all, if you can relate to this. Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is, this is what the law is doing. By design, the law is meant to, to drive us to the same conclusion that Paul comes to at the end of that chapter, which is, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I wonder today, friends, have you been brought to the same point? Have you come to this same sort of conclusion? As we consider this commandment, as we look into the core of it, and as we have to, we're forced to look into the core of our own hearts, the only right response, it seems to me, is, oh, how I need a savior. And if you're there right now, if you're there today in your understanding, then you're ready for the third point, which is the cure. And I, I suppose that if you've been with us here for a little bit of time anyway, there's no real surprises coming. There is no cure for covetousness except that there is a savior. A savior is the only cure for our covetous hearts. The only cure for breaking every single commandment is what? 
doing better, you know, trying again, trying try once again, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just kind of doing better. We try that every January. And by, definitely by the second or third week in January, um, we're all realizing that this year is just like the last year. What, what do we do when we break every single commandment? Just do better? No, we've just sung the truth, and I hope that you believe this. We've sung, the law could never save us. Our lawlessness had won. That, that's that's the, the story, is that our lawlessness has won the battle. There is no battle. It wins every time until, and listen, here's the cure, until the pure and spotless lamb had finally come. That song says, in love he condescended. And that's an allusion, I think, to one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, which is Philippians chapter 2. And it t that passage tells us in the most beautiful way that the eternal son of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you, you understand that as the eternal son of God, everything was in his possession, the full glory and all of the privileges of the Godhead. But if I could say it this way, the heart of the, heart of the son wasn't grabby. He, he, he gave up the, the glories of heaven, emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. He's found in human flesh now. This is what we celebrate at Christmas so long ago and yet so relevant for today. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He was tempted by Satan, even in this area of covetousness. You'll recall that Satan, when he was brought him, when he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, Satan comes to him and he offers him all of the kingdoms of this world. Be his for the taking. What more could you want? And Jesus says, get lost. And he set his eyes like a flint towards Jerusalem, where he laid down his life for idolaters, for blasphemers, for the disobedient, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for thieves, for liars, for people who covet. For people like me and you. The only cure for covetousness is if with the the grabby hands of your heart you drop all of your idols and cling for dear life onto this savior onto christ the only cure for covetousness is if you because of the work of christ can truly say again as we've sung it is done it's finished no more debt I owe. It's paid in full. All sufficient merit, now my own. If you can truly say that, if God truly says that about you, 
then it is incumbent on you, it's incumbent on me to now live a changed life. Again, Colossians 3 urges us to put everything earthly that is in us, including covetousness, to death. And, and that language there, putting to death, it's active language, okay? It refers to the intentional, the difficult work, the daily work of mortifying our sin, of crucifying our flesh. Yes, we've been saved. We have, by the grace of God, new hearts. All of that is gloriously true. But there is still something, texts like this um, explain, there is still something earthly in us. We have something of that old man that we have to contend with. Our hearts are so used to coveting, to pursuing, you know, to elbowing people out of the way so you can get that pink Stanley cup. To clinging, our hearts are so used to grabbing and clinging onto the stuff that this world has to offer that we need to take some radical steps to put all of that to death. And the application, I suppose, is endless. And trust that the Spirit will press some of it home to you. But just to use one example, yes, you've been saved. You've found ultimate satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. But can the Amazon Prime delivery guy recognize that? What's the cure for covetousness? And I think we can be helped by the structure of these Ten Commandments. They can be summarized under two heads, which corresponds to a kind of a two-step cure. It's this, love God and love your neighbor. Love God. You want to cure, by the grace of God, your covetous heart? Love God. Do you want stuff to lose its appeal to you? Do you want to knock your neighbor's possessions off the throne at the center of your universe? Well, then you, the Lord needs to be restored to his rightful place. And this requires that you daily grow in knowledge of and in love for the Lord, for the Christ that has died for you. Make him the single object of your desire. Have an ordinate and a rightful zeal, have an insatiable hunger and thirst for him and for his righteousness. And this is how it works. When you see the king in all of his beauty, you know what will happen? All, all of this other stuff that we've previously gone after will look like trash compared to knowing Christ. You'll be able to sing truly, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. You'll truly be able to sing something like, like this. You can, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. We can, we can be cured of covetousness 
when we love God, when we love our Savior, and by loving our neighbor. When we are, when we are, these two are not separate. They're so intimately connected. When we are content, when we are satisfied in God's provision for us, chiefly in his salvation of us, through um, the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're satisfied, if we're contented in that, and if we're contented in his providence, and by that fancy word, I simply just mean the stuff that he brings into our lives as a gracious heavenly father, things that are for his glory and for our good. That stuff, the stuff that he brings into our life and the stuff that he chooses not to give for the same reason for our good. If we can be content in his provision, in his providence, then, then that will free us up um, to just rest, to, to experience true satisfaction. Um, that you, you notice how all of, our, all of our scurrying and all of our chasing after the things of this earth are, makes us, it's so frantic. And it makes us so restless and unsettled. There is peace and joy and contentment in loving God. But God is gracious also to produce in us a love for our neighbor. So that instead of of wishing that they didn't have the good things and that we had them instead, we are now freed up to wish the best for them. And in the case of our unsaved neighbors, what what does this mean um, primarily? Well, first of all, I think you should mean that far from being jealous or chasing after the things that they have, the material things that they are going after and acquiring, far from being wanting that for ourselves, we should look upon that actually with great sadness. For, for the lostness and for the idolatry that is presently at work in our neighbor's heart that, that has them scurrying for these things, that has them working all of these hours and acquiring all of these things. It ought to just give us a, a heart and a passion for sharing with them the good news that we have come to discover by the grace of God, that there is satisfaction found only in Christ. You, you, can't, you can't have a testimony, you can't have a ministry to your neighbor when you are climbing all over him to get to the same things. Show them, show them Jesus. And show them by your life of contentment, of peace and joy that Jesus truly satisfies. And then in the case of your brothers and sisters in Christ, what the Lord would be gracious to produce in you is a, is a genuine love for them and uh, a gladness it, that, you're, that you're able to enter into them, with them, into all of the joys and all of the blessings that they receive at the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. You, you, can, you can now view your brother and sister in Christ not with any kind of like competition, but with true brotherhood and joy, you can rejoice with those who are rejoicing at the good gifts that God has in his wise providence been pleased to bless them with. Their, their spouse, such a godly, godly man, their children, the, the, the brand new vehicle 
that the Lord provided for them. Rejoice with them in that. Their job. On and on it goes. We can actually, we can actually genuinely enter into the joy of the satisfaction uh, that we all share in Christ. But the, the fact that this is the promise of Jesus. You pursue me. You seek first me and my righteousness. As uh, Pastor Jason prayed. Then I, all of these things will be added unto you. You can enter into the joy of knowing Christ. Arm in arm with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and truly rejoice at God's goodness to them. Well these are, these are challenging things aren't they? Our, our hearts are laid bare. We recognize that we are guilty, but we recognize that there is a Savior, that there's full forgiveness in his name, and that he does such a powerful work in us that we can actually be changed, that we can put to death covetousness by his grace. May we all, uh, with his help and by the power of the Holy Spirit, do just that. Amen?